Well, I am very excited to be here with all of you as we continue our series on Joshua. Today's story is going to be very familiar for a lot of you. If you've ever been to Sunday school or if you've ever watched VeggieTales, you will have heard this story before. We are going to be talking about the Battle of Jericho. So we're going to be in Joshua 5, Joshua chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you like one, go ahead and raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle now and they can give you one. And then if you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible. We love you and that is our gift to you. So while y'all are flipping to Joshua chapter 5, I'm going to give you a quick recap to catch everyone up with where we're at in the story. So the Israelites, they had been wandering around the desert for 40 years after God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And Moses, their previous leader, has died. And now Joshua, his protege, his apprentice, has stepped up. And it's now his turn to lead the Israelites into the promised land that's known as Canaan. However, there's a problem. Actually, there are 31 problems, and there are 31 of these kind of city-states that are currently occupying Canaan, and they will all need to be defeated and destroyed if the Israelites are to fully possess the land that God promised them. And the first and one of the biggest cities that they come across is Jericho. Also, there's another problem. On their way to Jericho, they run into the Jordan River. And this is during flood season. So the Jordan River would have been very dangerous to cross. In fact, it probably would have killed them. But when has God ever let a little bit of water get between his people and their destination, right? And so God, he performs a miracle and he dries up the Jordan River and the Israelites are able to walk right across. And now they're at the doorstep of Jericho. And if you remember from last week's sermon, Pastor Dan talked about Rahab and how Joshua had sent two spies into Jericho to kind of scope things out. And the people of Jericho found out about these spies and they began to hunt them down. And Rahab hid those two spies in her house, saving their life. As a result, God declared that her and her family's lives would also be saved and that they would actually be grafted in to the family of Israel. However, now the people of Jericho, they know that the Israelites are coming and they know that the Israelites have their mean faces on and that they are ready to fight and they're looking for a fight. And that's where we're at in the story. So we're going to pick it up in Joshua 5, starting in verse 13. Here we go. When Joshua was by Jericho, when they say that, they literally mean like at Jericho's doorsteps. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals, take your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I want to pause there for just a moment because there's something really critical about this uh, part that you need to know. This commander of the Lord's army is most likely Jesus. Most scholars, most theologians, and I agree, believe that this is actually Jesus before his incarnation, before he was born, before he took on human flesh. So throughout scripture, anytime that God reveals himself to us, that is Jesus. Jesus is God's self-revelation, right? The second part of the Holy Trinity, self-revelation, that's why he's also known as the word of God. 
Words always convey information. They reveal something. Anytime God self-reveals to us, that is Jesus. So this person, this thing that Joshua has encountered is actually Jesus, which is why Jesus says, take off your shoes. The ground that you're standing on is holy. And that's why Joshua immediately fell on his face and began worshiping because Joshua knew that he was in the presence of the divine. All right, let's continue worshiping. Or let's continue Well, yeah, let's continue worshiping and reading. Here we go. Joshua chapter six, verse one. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Remember, they knew they were coming, so they're going into hiding. None went out and none came in. I'm actually gonna pause there again real quick. I wanna paint a mental picture for you of what Jericho would have been like. So this, is not, this city is not like Houston where everything's super spread out and it would have taken you like three or four days to walk around the entire city, right? In fact, most of the people lived and worked outside of the city walls of Jericho. Uh, the walls themselves, the site of Jericho itself would probably only have been like five to eight acres. So like you could, even if you had a bit of a hustle going, you could probably walk around the entire perimeter in under an hour, probably in like 30 minutes or so. And the walls themselves, there are actually two sets of walls, outer walls and inner walls. And they were tall and they were thick uh, and they were built for defensive purposes to defend against flooding, but mostly to defend against foreign invaders. And so what would happen is whenever a enemy would show up to try to kill them, all the people from outside the city would go hide inside the city and they would shut the gates and lock the doors and there was a spring inside. And so they had an endless supply of water and they would typically have like one to two years worth of food inside. And so they would just go in there and wait out the siege and just hope that their enemy gives up before they run out of food. So you can kind of think of it as like like an ancient version of a bomb shelter, right? And the people of Jericho were like paranoid doomsday preppers, like always prepared, right? And for good reason, because here are the Israelites and they're looking for a fight. All right, let's continue reading Joshua 6, 2 through 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant, which by the way, the Ark of the Covenant, they believed was where God's presence was made manifest. So they're literally carrying around God's presence with them as they're marching. Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Okay, let's pause there and let's just talk about how insane this situation is real quick. Uh, so Jesus gives Joshua these crazy commands and then Joshua has to go relay these commands to his people. And I can only imagine how that went. Like his, like his army generals are looking at the wall and they're probably trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to get people to either come out of these walls or how are we going to penetrate the walls? Or maybe we can go up and over the walls. And Joshua, their leader shows up and says, guys, I've got it. I've got a plan. It's going to sound crazy. All right. 
but just go with me because it comes from a very reliable source. I'm positive it's going to work. And he begins to explain this plan. Like, I hope you have your marching shoes on because we're going to be doing a lot of marching and uh, the priests are going to be blowing horns. And then on the seventh day, after we march around it seven times, when you hear that one long, loud, last trumpet blast, then we're all going to scream at the wall. And according to my source, it's just going to fall down. That's... That's what he says is going to happen. So, you know, there's that one guy in the back who was like, yeah, that's not how walls work, right? Like, walls don't just fall down when you scream at them. And at this point, too, the Israelites didn't have the best track record for being obedient to God's plans. But, amazingly, they actually follow through with God's plan to perfection. They actually do it. Now, let's see what happens. We're going to fast forward to verse 15, Joshua 6, verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So they've already done the first six days of marching. This is the seventh day. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you this city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, And the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. And they captured the city and then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So they follow God's plan to a T and amazingly it worked. The walls fell down flat. They were able to walk right in and achieve victory. But here's what we need to know from this. Their victory was not won through military strategy or through technology or human innovation. Their victory was assured the moment that Joshua fell down flat and surrendered at the feet of Jesus. Because of their faith and because of their obedience, God transformed what was an obstacle into stepping stones on the path to the promised land. And whether you realize it or not, you and I have the same opportunity right now. Every single day that we wake up, we have the opportunity to surrender ourselves at the feet of Jesus, to abide in his word, to live like he lived, loved like he loved. A good practice for reading scripture is that whenever you read it, always suspect yourself in every story. In other words, imagine yourself in the story and how you would react. And so when I put myself in Joshua's shoes in the story, I would like to think that my response to to Jesus and his plan would be, okay, it's a strange plan, but yes, Lord, let's go with it. I'll, I'll do it. But honestly, I'm pretty sure that my response would have been, Jesus, that, that plan doesn't make any sense. That's, that's not how walls work, right? And that's an honest answer. In fact, that's our honest answer to a lot of the ways that Jesus calls us to live. Like you want us to walk around the walls how many times? 
and then we're going to scream at them and they're just going to fall down. That's what you're saying. That, does, that doesn't make any sense. Like you want us to forgive how many times? No matter what. That doesn't make any sense, right? You want us to respond to hatred and violence with love? That doesn't make any sense. You want me to give generously of my hard-earned money and resources to people who may or may not deserve it? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus, you want to die to defeat death? That doesn't make any sense. And yet, here we are. Death has been defeated. Our sins have been paid for. All because Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus surrendered to his father's will, even if, when it didn't make any sense. And the result is resurrection. The result was victory and freedom for you and for me. Because of Jesus' obedience, this promised land is now open for us too. Jesus offers us the fullness of life. This life of, of freedom and peace and joy. But you can't get there on your own. There are just too many walls in your path. Walls that you can't topple. You can't do anything on your own to topple those walls. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can topple the walls between you and the fullness of life that God offers. In John 15:5, Jesus says it like this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We cannot accomplish anything of significance on our own. And frankly, God is not impressed with the things that we do on our own. God is not impressed that Bill Gates made billions of dollars. Cool. God is not impressed with the power of presidents and world leaders and dictators. God is not impressed that the Nationals won the World Series. <laughs> but, amen. But, God delights in obedience. He delights in obedience. The theologian and pastor A.W. Tozer, he said it like this. He said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. Every day we wake up and we formulate a plan for how we're going to live our day. And when we formulate that plan, we are making a choice. Am I going to surrender to Jesus today? Or am I going to surrender to something or someone else? We make that choice every single day. And I think that far too often, we choose to surrender to our sin, particularly self-sufficiency. There's a theologian and a monk and author named Thomas Merton. And he said, your life is shaped by the ends that you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. We surrender to what we desire. And that person or that thing that we surrender to, it shapes us. It forms our identity. It shapes who we are. And I think that for a lot of us, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we surrender to money, to the pursuit of money. There's a reason why Jesus talks about it so often and warns of its seductive power because he knew that there's a high chance, high probability that we are being controlled by money and that it's preventing us from fully surrendering and being obedient to his will. 
Until recently, I was foolish enough to believe that money had very little hold over me. I mean, like I chose to work for a church, right? Like I willingly chose to work in ministry. You don't do that if you're hoping to strike it rich, right? And like, I've never really had that burning desire to make a ton of money, right? I've never had the dream of being uh, buy a second home in the Bahamas rich, right? Like my dreams have always been much more modest of like, you know, don't have to order off the dollar menu rich or uh, can buy new tires instead of used tires rich. Uh, or in the words of Nick from the TV show, New Girl, fill my gas tank all the way to the top rich, right? Uh, that's the kind of rich I wanted to be. Uh, then a couple of years ago, Kathleen, my wife, um, she came to me and she asked if we could pay for counseling for someone that she knew who needed to go to counseling but couldn't afford it. And my immediate response was, can't someone else do it? Like, surely there's someone with way more money than us who can help this person with their counseling fees. Because counseling is not always cheap. It can be pretty expensive. And, and I was thinking, like, we have bills to pay and we have formula to buy. Like, my car needs new brake pads. But really what it was, is that we were saving up to go on this awesome vacation with a big group of our friends. And I knew that if I said yes to this, it could put that vacation in jeopardy. So here I was with an opportunity to surrender to Jesus. Like, here was my big Joshua moment, right? Here was my opportunity to be obedient to live according to God's plan of giving generously of the resources that he blessed me with in the first place. They're not even mine. And sure, we could have found somebody else probably that could have helped this person out. We could have found someone else with more money that could have helped with this person's counseling fees. But this opportunity was not presented to someone else. It was presented to me. This was my opportunity to surrender and live obediently and I balked at it because of my own selfishness. Fortunately for me, I have a wife who loves Jesus and loves people and loves me for some reason, and she was able to very gently turn my no into a yes, which thank goodness. But here's what I learned about myself. I might not have the desire to be rich. Like I might not spend a lot of time thinking about how I can go out and make tons of money, however, I do spend a whole lot of time worrying that I don't have enough money. And that worry controls me and it prevents me from fully surrendering and being obedient to the way that God calls me to live. So I want you all to think, what sin is controlling you? What is it that your heart desires that you're surrendering to that is shaping you and maybe even preventing you from living obediently. Because every day that we choose to, to surrender to something other than Jesus, we are building more walls between us and the life that God offers, walls that, again, only Jesus can topple. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a gentleman who was bragging about the fact that he couldn't remember the last time that he took a real vacation. And then he proceeded to gossip and slander this other uh, gentleman who would dare turn off his work emails when it was his off day. He called him lazy. He said that he had a terrible work ethic and that he would have never amount to anything, that he was worthless. And then he topped off that conversation by saying that even when he goes on vacation with his family, he's always working. 
He never takes an off day. And he was proud of that. And I just wanted to grab him by his shoulders and shake him around and say, that's not noble. Like, that's not something to be proud of. Being so consumed by your work that you work yourself to the bone, that's not something to be proud of. Like, I'm afraid that if this person had encountered Jesus the way that Joshua did, and Jesus told him, hey, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. This person would be like, yep, hang on, Jesus, real quick, I just, I gotta respond to this work email, it's very important, hang on. It's not important, it's not. Nothing is more important than surrendering to Jesus, nothing. Nothing is more important. Here's a good test to see, for you to see what it is that you are obedient to. If you were to take your daily schedule, and if you were to write down your daily schedule in excruciating detail, I mean the things that you think about and that you're doing every minute of every day, if you were to write all that down on a piece of paper, and if you were to look at it, what would your schedule say that you're surrendered to? Or better yet, if you were to show that schedule to someone else, what would that person say that you are surrendered to? Who or what would that person say that you're being obedient to? In the words of Pastor Dan, it's our checkbook and our calendar that give us away. They reveal what our heart truly desires because we surrender to what we love. That's why Jesus, his entire life was marked by surrender, even to the point of death because of his love for his father and his love for you and for me. Now I want you to imagine for a moment what your life would look like if you were to actually fully surrender to Jesus. What would your life look like if you were to live completely obediently to the way that he calls you to live? Like what would it be like to give generously without wondering what's in it for me? Like what would it look like to finally just let go of all those grudges and just release that burden? What would it look like to stop judging people once and for all? What would it look like to not care so much what other people think about us? What would it be like to actually care deeply about the poor and the downtrodden? What would it be like to finally believe that stuff can't make me happy? What would it be like to be capable of loving and forgiving even to the point of death? To me, that sounds like freedom. To me, that sounds like liberation. Like following Jesus would mean that all of these walls in my life that are preventing me from living the, my life to the fullness that God has in store for me, all those walls will come crashing down around me. Walls like my bitterness and my worry and my self-righteousness and my idolatry and my willingness to like judge other people and my materialism, my misplaced loyalties, all those walls would just come crashing down around me. That sounds like the kind of life that I wanna live. And if you're anything like me, you might be hearing this and thinking, yes, I want that life too. That sounds amazing, that's the kind of life I want, but I know that the moment I leave this place, the moment that I exit the doors of Faith Bridge and I go out into the world, there are gonna be countless people and things that are gonna be pulling for my attention and my affections and my allegiance, and I'm gonna lose sight of Jesus. It's like we go out into the world and Will Smith from Men in Black shows up and flashy things us and wipes our memory and we forget who we are and who we're called to follow, right? It's that struggle that Will Smith from Men in Black, or sorry, that struggle that Paul, <laughs> not Will Smith, 
that Paul from the Bible uh, <laughs> articulates so well when he says, <laughs> what did he say? When he says, why do I keep doing the things that I hate, right? Like, why do I keep choosing the things I don't want to choose? Like, I don't want to choose sin. I want to choose Jesus, but it's so difficult, right? And because we live in a world where it's so easy to forget and where it's so difficult to surrender, that's why it's absolutely crucial that we constantly surround ourselves with people and with things that remind us of our allegiance to Jesus and to who he calls us to be. We must surround ourselves constantly with reminders. In 1981, a psychologist, Dr. Ellen Langer, she held a fascinating experiment in which she took eight men who were all in their 70s and she brought them to a monastery and the monastery had been transformed to look like they were stepping back in time into 1959. So when the men walked in the doors of the monastery, uh, Perry Como was playing on the radio and there was a black and white TV that had the Ed Sullivan show on and they had taken all of the mirrors uh, down from the house. There were no mirrors at all, but there were pictures of them from the 50s. And all of the books, all of the magazines, all the decorations were straight from that era, from the 50s, and they were told to only talk about things that they would have talk about, talked about back in 1959. And before they went into the house, they were all given a full medical exam where they tested for things like flexibility and dexterity and grip strength and vision and hearing and memory and cognition. And then those men lived in that house for five days. After the five days was up, they were given the same exact medical exam to see if there was any improvements. And for every single man across the board, there were noticeable improvements in every area. There was one man who actually, his eyesight actually improved. Another man who he walked in with a walker and then he walked out without one, totally fine. And then objective third-party observers all noted that every single man looked noticeably younger and healthier. And this study is fascinating for a number of reasons, but in particular, I think it illustrates how much power our surroundings have on the way that we think. And what we think about influences the way that we live, right? This is why it's absolutely crucial for Christians to always be aware of their surroundings, always be aware of who and what they're surrounded by, and make sure that they are constantly surrounded by markers that point them back to God, that remind them of God's promises. Joshua, just before Joshua's encounter with Jesus, remember they had walked uh, right through the Jordan River because God had dried it up. Once they were on the other side, they set up a memorial, a marker, a reminder of 12 stones to remind themselves and to remind others of the miracle that God had done that day, right? So think about your daily life. How often are you reminded in your daily life of the promises of God? Do you have markers sprinkled throughout your day that point you back to him? The most obvious, but I think the most effective reminder is scripture, right? To have scripture sprinkled throughout your day. Think back to Ken's sermon from a couple weeks ago when he preached on Joshua 1. There's a reason why God commanded Joshua to meditate on his word day and night, now, did he expect Joshua to go lock himself in a closet and only read scripture and think about scripture all day, every day? No, 
But the point is that we need to be avid readers of scripture. We need to consume scripture so much so that it's always at the forefront of our minds. It becomes the primary lens through which we view the rest of the world, through which we view others. Like if you desire Jesus and you want to surrender to him, then you need to go to one of the primary places where he can be found. And when you read scripture, you need to read it expecting to have an encounter with the living God. And you need to take all of your dreams, all your aspirations, your motives, your thoughts, your desires, and like Joshua, you need to lay them at the feet of Jesus and surrender. And say, not my will, but yours be done. And just as important as who, or as what, is who you're surrounded by. When I was in junior high, my best friend at the time was a kid named Justin. And Justin, in the seventh grade, was six feet, two inches tall. All right, this guy was a monster. And I went to a pretty rough junior high. And so it was awesome to have Justin as a friend because when people got in a fight with me, they also knew that they were going to be getting a fight with Justin, which prevented a lot of fights. It was great. Um, Justin was also a horrible influence on me. Uh, Justin's parents let him do and watch and say and listen to anything he wanted, which when I was in the seventh grade, I thought was awesome. I thought that was super cool. I loved going over to Justin's house. Uh, But I became noticeably more angry, more rebellious, more aggressive. The way I talked began to change. And my parents noticed all this. And like they even sent me to counseling because they were so concerned. Uh, But they knew that the source of the problem was Justin. So eventually, they stopped letting me go over to his house at all. And then they even took me out of that junior high after eighth grade, and they moved me to a completely different school to get me away from him, which I hated at the time. I resented them so much for that. I was furious that they would do that. But then, at this new school, I met all these awesome new guys that became really close friends that are still some of my best friends to this day. And those guys influenced me in a totally different way, in a positive way. And the anger and the aggression and the rebelliousness, eventually it took a complete 180 and it it faded away. Parents, you could be the best parents in the world, but you'll never have as much influence on your kids as their friends will. You just won't. That's why I'm so thankful for a place like Faithbridge and like the kids' ministry and the student ministry that we have here. It's one of the reasons, it's the primary reason why I came to work here was because of the student ministry here. Because our student ministry isn't just a place, uh, it's, it's not just a holding tank with pizzas, right? It's a place where students can build strong relationships with other students and leaders who are going to pour into them and develop them and teach them what it looks like to be a strong disciple of Jesus Christ so that when they leave here and they leave your nest and they go out into college, they know what it looks like to surrender to Jesus and obediently follow him. Who we surround ourselves with is absolutely vital. It's crucial. And adults, that goes for us too. We are not above being influenced. And can you imagine if when Joshua was giving uh, the plans to his people, right? If one person in the back raised his hand and was like, this is stupid, we're not doing this. Because I imagine, I would bet that there were a handful of people there who were privately harboring doubts. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. And all it takes is that one person going, yeah, this isn't going to work. This is stupid. 
to feed those doubts and to fuel those doubts and to turn that doubt into disobedience. Likewise, all it takes is that one person who's leading by faith, who's encouraging, who's supporting, to turn your doubts into trust and obedience. Make sure that you are surrounded by people who regularly push you to surrender to Jesus, not to disobedience. I want to close by highlighting one more crucial detail from this story. So we're going to go back to Joshua 6, verse 2. Joshua 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. I have given Jericho into your hand. The battle hasn't happened yet. They haven't marched a single foot. I have given Jericho into your hand. Before the battle even began, victory was assured. We can confidently surrender to God because we know that God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. When we surrender, there is no wondering if God will provide us with the life that he has promised us. It is a guarantee. God is always faithful to come through on his promises. And throughout this sermon, I've been saying that surrendering to Jesus will lead to a life of freedom. And I want to read that promise to you. It comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. I want to close by reading this promise to you, and then we're going to pray together. This comes from John, uh, yeah, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Listen to this, and then we're going to pray. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you surrender, if you follow me, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, which means pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Pray with me. Father, I'm just so thankful for your love for us, for your desire to not abandon us to our sin, to our rebellion, and to our brokenness, for your desire to set us free from the chains of sin, from the punishment of sin, death, and from the evil one who would hold us enslaved to sin. Father, because of your love, you sent your son to live a life of perfect obedience, to live a life of surrender in order to give us victory, in order to give us freedom. And that freedom is not something that we have to wait for, but God, you offer us that freedom right now. You offer us a life of peace and joy and love right now. So Father, I pray for all of us here, that whatever it is that we're clinging on to, whatever it is that we're surrendering to that is not you, Father, that you bring that to our attention right now 
and that your Holy Spirit does a convicting work in our hearts, not to bring on shame, but to show us how if we just release our grip on that sin or on that self-sufficiency, that if we just surrender ourselves to you, there's freedom, there's joy, because life and all things good are found in you and you want us to experience that goodness. You want us to experience that life. So Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit is doing a miraculous work in our hearts right now, right this moment, convicting us so we can fully surrender to you. Father, we're so thankful for the countless blessings that you give us, even though we don't deserve it. Most of all, we're thankful for your love and we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.